Well, if you do have a Bible in front of you, I want to encourage you to open it to Philippians chapter 4. This is week number two of our Advent series. Our series is called A Better Christmas, and we're spending the month of December exploring the themes of Advent, hope, peace, love, and joy. And we're exploring those themes in light of Jesus' coming. Now, our normal practice as a church is to systematically uh, preach our way through books of the Bible, but we do take breaks from that at times, and often at Christmas, uh, we do take a break to do an Advent series or some sort of Christmas series, and we were just talking about this series uh, around the office this week, and Andy made the observation that this series could not have come at a better time. And just think about that for a minute. Is there anything... The world needs more right now than hope, peace, love, and joy. Is there anything you need more right now than those things? I mean, what what do you need in the midst of so much uncertainty? You need hope. What do you need in the face of so much turbulence? You need peace. What do you need in a world that experiences so much fear, so much division? You need love. You need to respond with love. And what is it that we need when the circumstances of life seem to drive us to despair? We need joy. Our theme for this series comes from Romans chapter 15. We talked about this verse last week, or at least I mentioned it. Where it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That is our prayer for you throughout this series. Now, when we refer to hope, peace, love, and joy as Christians, we are not referring to abstract ideas, but to concrete realities. We looked last week at the ways in which Jesus offers us a better hope. And this morning, we're going to look at the ways Jesus offers us a better peace. The ancient prophecy of Isaiah predicted the birth of Jesus with these words, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The increase of His peace, there will be no end. The angels announced the birth of Jesus with these words, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel... A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with who he is pleased. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. His coming is said to result in peace. Now, what do we mean by peace? The word gets used in different ways. We sometimes refer to it as the absence of conflict between two nations or two individuals. At other times, the word peace is used to describe a state of being. I'm at peace with my situation. The Old Testament word for peace is one of the Hebrew words that we all know. It's the word shalom. 
Shalom refers to more than just the absence of conflict. It refers to the state of wholeness or completeness. And when the Bible speaks about the peace we experience as Christians, the better peace that Jesus offers, it does refer to what we might call external and internal peace. It's a peace that we experience externally in our relationships with others, and it's a peace that we experience internally that allows us to face whatever situations we might be facing with a sense of calmness and not panic. The better peace Jesus gives. So I want us to look now at this passage in Philippians chapter 4 where we see both of these kinds of peace or both of these dimensions of peace on display. And we're looking at verses 1 to 9 in Philippians chapter 4. This is God's word and this is what it says. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, we can divide this passage into two main sections. The first section deals with what we might call external or relational peace. The second section has something to say about the internal peace that we or peace of mind that we can experience. So there's two sections, but I want to highlight three truths for you. So you consider that third one as sort of a early Christmas gift from me to you. The first truth we see here is that true relational peace can only be found in something bigger than ourselves. Now we're beginning our look at this passage at verse 1 or with verse 1. You can see this in your Bible, but most translations make the paragraph break at verse 2, where Paul begins to address these two women. I understand why they do that, but since we're jumping into Philippians midstream, I think it's important to understand something of what has come before verse 2. What Paul says to these two women, to Yodia and Syntyche, is grounded in what he says in verse 1. And I think it's good for us just to notice all of the relational language in the first three verses of chapter 4. Verse 1 begins with the words, Therefore, my brothers. The Greek word is adelphoi. It's really clear in this context that it means brothers and sisters. It's a familial term. We in the church are brothers and sisters in Christ. We might not be related by blood, But by virtue of our mutual relationship with Christ, we are family. 
can also see Paul's affection for the Christians in Philippi with everything else he says in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for. So Paul didn't just have a surface level relationship with those he was writing to. He loved them. They're now separated by distance. They're in different cities. Paul is actually in prison. And so he longs for them. He longs to see them again. This is actually how I feel about you. I long for the day when we will gather together again. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The ones I love. What a, what a way to start, right? Before he says what he says about Yodia and Syntyche, he reminds them of what the church is by its nature. But it's not just verse 1 where we see this kind of personal, relational language. Let's keep reading. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Now that English word companion comes from Latin. It comes from two Latin words, in fact. First word is the word cum, which means with. The second word is panis, which means bread. And so a companion is someone that you share bread with, someone that you've eaten a meal with. And this was a big deal in the first century. It's a relational term. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Brothers and sisters, beloved, companions, fellow workers, you get a sense of what kind of community that that the church is just from those words, don't you? This is the basis of our relational peace. But we can't ignore what we read in verse 2, where Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There was some kind of tension, some kind of dispute, some lack of shalom or peace between these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Now it sounds crazy, right? Two women in the church who were not getting along? I mean, I've never heard of such a thing. This isn't one of those places where we have to puzzle over the Bible's meaning, right? We're not trying to piece together what's meant by head coverings or food offered to idols. We all understand this. We know what it's like to have tensions in our relationships with others, even with other Christians. Now, we aren't told exactly what the source of that tension was. We don't know if it was a disagreement over their philosophy of ministry or if it was some sort of interpersonal conflict, the truth is it doesn't matter. Paul's concern was the way this conflict between these two women might adversely affect the gospel witness in the city of Philippi. See, a church that is experiencing or that's not experiencing relational peace is not going to be effective in pointing others to the Prince of Peace. Paul's not just pointing out the problem that exists when there's a lack of relational peace in the church. He also points to the solution. What are we supposed to do when there's not shalom? 
And what Paul says to these two women and to the church is so interesting. His entreaty to them is that they would agree in the Lord. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, what Paul is doing is he is grounding the basis of their unity or their peace in something that is bigger than themselves. Whatever there was to divide them, there was something much bigger that united them and they needed to see that. There are always things that have the potential to divide us. One of those things in the first century world and the first century church was a person's ethnicity, specifically whether someone was a Jew or a Gentile. And Paul speaks to that very issue uh, elsewhere, and it's instructive, I think, for all of the things that have the potential to divide us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, for he, referring to Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who, who, to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what was the basis of peace or unity? between Jews and Gentiles. Well, it was a peace based in their mutual reconciliation with God. And that trumped whatever differences might have existed between them. The same thing is true with regard to Yodia and Syntyche. Their tension was not ethnicity in this case. They're both Greek names. But whatever the source of their conflict, their mutual relationship with Jesus was far more important their names had been written in the book of life. You know, as we think about peace in relationships or unity in relationships, we have to acknowledge that sometimes all we really have is sort of a surface level unity or surface level peace in some of our relationships. And our relationships will only be as strong as what that unity or peace is based on. To take a trivial example, let's say that you and I meet somewhere and we start talking and we discover that we have a mutual love of sports. We've got some unity based around that. We both love sports. But then let's say that you, you, know, you say to me, hey, Lee, why don't you come over and we can watch some soccer together? Right? I'm, I'm probably going to politely decline and you know, just because I don't like watching guys roll around on the ground every time another player gets near them, right? So we've got some kind of peace. But you know, when you go a little bit deeper, it's, it's not all that deep, right? Or maybe you are a football fan. But you know, instead of cheering for the Seahawks, you cheer for the Patriots or the Packers, right? I mean, our, our, our level of peace will only go so far. It's only as strong as the bond or as the thing in which it is based, but the unity or the peace that we have in the church, the unity or peace we enjoy in our relationships with other Christians actually goes much deeper than that. As an analogy, consider a bag that's filled with marbles. There are many marbles, various colors and sizes. They're all packed closely together inside that bag. And we might look at that bag and say, well, it's a unified group of marbles. 
But if that bag is ripped or cut open, the marbles will spill out in all directions because there's nothing internal that binds them or holds them together. It's a loose unity. There's a contrast to that. Think about a magnet that's placed into a pile of iron shavings. By their nature, the shavings respond to the power of the magnet and they are drawn together. That's what unity or peace in the church looks like. We are drawn together by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ. It's the kind of unity, that's the kind of peace God desires among us. That's the basis for our peace. It's that we've both been reconciled to God. So that's what's objectively true for Christians. But you know, maybe you have another Christian in your life where you have the kind of tension that Yodia or Syntyche was experiencing. What are you supposed to do then? Well, earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul said it this way. He said, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And I want to say when we have a breakage in our shalom or in our peace with a fellow believer, We ought to seek to reconcile. The book of Ephesians, Paul tells us to make every effort to keep the unity of of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We make every effort, or as Paul says in the book of Romans, as much as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with all people. This means we have to put those things aside that might divide us and focus on what it is that unites us and what unites us is our common identity in Jesus. So that's what this passage has to say about external or relational peace, but it also has something to teach us about internal peace. What we ought to notice here is that inner peace is found in something outside of our circumstances and outside of ourselves. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Our theme this week is peace, not joy, but there is a connection between the two. You can't really rejoice if you are not at peace. And the first thing we're instructed to do here is to rejoice. This is not the first time Paul says something like this in this letter. Chapter 3 began with Paul saying, finally, my brothers or sister, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians is known for being a book about joy. There are actually 16 references to joy or rejoicing in the book of Philippians. At the very least, this teaches us that joy should be one of the chief characteristics of Christians. We're told to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, just so we don't think that this is a cliched response that doesn't work in real life, just think about where Paul was when he wrote these words. He wasn't sitting in a chalet in the south of France. He wasn't on a cruise ship in the waters off the Bahamas. He was in prison. Paul was writing to a church that was experiencing persecution. And Paul doesn't write to them and say, you know what, just hang on. 
Your circumstances are going to change and then you can rejoice. He says is rejoice in the Lord always. Always or at all times and in all circumstances. Even in the midst of persecution and suffering. That's a timely reminder for us. I mean, COVID stinks, right? I don't know how else to say that, but it does. And if you have put rejoicing on hold until COVID is over, this will be a miserable Christmas for you. See, the reason we experience a better Christmas as Christians has nothing to do with how much money we might have for presents this year. It has nothing to do with what our external circumstances look like. It has everything to to do with what we're told in verse 5, where Paul says, let your reasonableness or gentleness or peace be known to all. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. See, as Christians, we know that nothing that is happening right now has taken God by surprise. We know that God is not unaware or uninvolved with what is happening in our worlds. We know that the Lord is at hand. We know that the one who keeps us does not slumber or sleep. And so we can rejoice. And then in verse 6, Paul goes on to say, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, the words anything and everything should remind us that prayer is not just sort of a religious thing. It's not just something we do as a last resort when we're in trouble. It's a way of life. And Paul's point could not be clearer. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. It's simple, right? Now, there's a sense in which this is more difficult today than it has ever been. The technological advancements of the last hundred years have meant that we have more to worry about than ever before. I mean, a hundred years ago, you worried about your own little problems. But now we get a steady diet of everyone's problems the world over. I'm not suggesting we stick our heads in the sand and ignore what's happening in the world, but if your digital habits center around consuming all of the fear porn produced by our newsmakers, it's no wonder you're dealing with increased anxiety. A steady diet of that does nothing but increase your level of anxiety and worry. Back in our Rhythms of Grace series, we spent two weeks talking about the disciplines of prayer and meditation. And we see both of of those in this passage. Paul tells us not to worry about anything, but to pray about everything. That's what we do. And then he goes on to tell us what we ought to do with our mind or our mental activity. He tells us to meditate on that which is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. That's what we're supposed to think about. That's what we're supposed to fill our minds with. One of my college professors used to say, that's the solution to mind pollution, right? You meditate on these things. But notice that neither of those things, prayer and meditation, are in keeping with the contemporary mantra of looking within yourself. That's what the world tells us to do. It's not working. 
I mean, we live in an era of unprecedented wealth and health. And yet we have greater levels of anxiety than ever before. Could that be because we do not take our burdens to God in prayer? Could that be because we're so fixated on earthly concerns? I love the imagery we find in the book of Jeremiah where he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. And notice it's not that the heat doesn't come or that the drought doesn't come but that the roots of the tree run deep because of its confidence in the Lord's simple trust. And Paul goes on to tell us what happens when we do this in verse 7. Standing will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible promise. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The metaphor here is, is that the peace of God will be like a detachment of soldiers who stand guard over a city to protect it from attack. And the peace of God will be like a sentry or a garrison protecting our hearts and our minds. But what's even more than that, this peace will remain even when we don't understand what's happening in our lives. One of my morning habits for the past 10 years or so has been to read Tim Challey's blog. Tim is a Canadian. He's an author. He has been a pastor. One of his kids recently died unexpectedly on the campus of Southern Seminary in Kentucky. And earlier this week, Tim posted this update. He said it was four weeks ago on a Tuesday evening that we received a flurry of terrifying text messages. Then waited through a brutal silence. Then got the dreaded phone call. Our Nick had collapsed. Had been rushed to hospital, but had been beyond the best efforts of the best professionals. I paused and asked the ER doctor on the other end of the line to repeat himself. I need to hear it one more time. You're telling me that my son, Nicholas Challies, has died, right? Though he was just 20 and to our knowledge completely healthy, he had gone to be with the Lord. Then, as now, no one knows why. One moment he was playing sports with his friends, his sister and his fiance, and the next he was gone just like that. And then towards the end of his update, he said this, I feel the need to say that in all the pain and through all the tears, none of us have wavered in our conviction that God is good and that God expresses his goodness through his sovereignty. Nick's death was not a mistake and was not meaningless, even if we cannot see its purpose and the significance right now. None of us have raised a fist to the sky, though each of us longs for answers. None of us have demanded them. These little bits of clay will not demand answers of the potter. In that way and so many others, I'm so very proud of my little family and so very thankful for them. In this way and so many others, they are passing through the deepest trial with their faith, not only intact, but strengthened. I praise God for that. See, that's what the peace that passes all understanding looks like. 
There's a third truth we discover in this passage, and it's an important one. And that is that we will not experience the peace of God without knowing the God of peace. So verse 7, again, gives us that incredible promise. peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 then tells us what we're supposed to meditate on. And then verse 9 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Did you catch that? The peace of God and the God of peace is a package deal. Now listen, our culture does not understand this. Many people are trying to have the peace of God or experience the peace of God without knowing the God of peace. I mean, just go into your local chapters or indigo and just survey all of the anti-stress books. And what you will find is that none of them begin with the big questions of life. They don't begin with the questions like, is there a purpose to our lives? Is there a God? Is there such thing as absolute truth? Is it possible to discover meaning in the universe? Instead, these books all begin with method. They begin with things like relaxation techniques or examining your diet or making sure you're getting enough exercise or enough sleep. Are you dealing with anxiety and stress? Try yoga. If that doesn't work for you, try hot yoga. That's how the thinking goes. Just try these techniques. Then you can experience peace. Now look, there's, there, there's some benefit to learning how to relax. There's benefit to good diet and exercise. But that's not how you experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. The only way you can experience that kind of peace, the kind that can face any situation or circumstance and be completely at peace, is to know the God who holds all things in his power. So while it's important to experience external peace in our relationships and internal peace as we face all the ups and downs of life, we can't truly experience those things if we do not have peace with God. So how do we experience peace with God? The Bible tells us there's only one way. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says it in Colossians, for in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the way we have peace with God is through what Jesus has done for us. That's why as Christians, we have a better peace. God has made peace between God, or Jesus has made peace between God and us by his sacrifice on the cross. This is what it means to say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. This is what it means to say that Jesus offers us a better peace. Because when we have peace with God, when we realize that God reconciled us to himself, not counting our sins against us, then we understand how we can have peace in our relationships, even when we know we've been wronged. And when we have peace with God, when we know that he loved us enough to send his son to experience what looked like sure defeat 
in a cruel execution on the cross, but that that turned out to be a definitive victory, then we can experience the peace that passes all understanding. So my prayer for you is that you will experience the peace of God, that that peace will be manifested in your relationships, that peace will be manifested within you, that peace will be demonstrated in your love for God because of what Christ has done for us. So let's pray together. Father, as we are in the midst of this season, we want to thank you for the peace that we have with you, that peace that was given to us by what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we pray as we live out that peace, as we recognize what has been done for us, God, would we then have peace with those around us? Would we be ambassadors of peace? Lord, I pray for those who are maybe struggling with anxiety during this season, struggling with the sense of, are are you in control? What's going on? Lord, I pray that they would experience your peace, your peace that passes all understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.